chapter 5 tonight, Daniel chapter 5. Daniel 5 is a little bit like what we went through last week in Daniel 4. It's not that there's a lot of difficult concepts per se to have to go over. It actually, you can read it straight through, get the story pretty well, and I kind of like some of those things. So really, when you look at your sheets tonight, there's really not a whole lot of deep information on it. It's more of just a little bit of an outline of some of the things that we're going to be going over. But what we have here in Daniel chapter 5 is we're introduced in verse 1 to Belshazzar. Now, you need to understand who Belshazzar is. Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the man that we've been talking about through the first four chapters here in the book of Daniel. So Belshazzar is his grandson. Now, the way the Bible reads, it will refer to uh, Nebuchadnezzar as his father, which is just a fancy way of saying grandfather, and it will refer to Belshazzar as his son, which is just a fancy way of saying grandson there. But Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who we've studied about in the first four chapters. You can read there. I put a little information on your sheet. He ruled with his father, who was Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, and he ruled from roughly 553 to 539 B.C. Now, we know exactly when this story takes place because, not trying to give away the ending, in verse 30 and 31, Belshazzar dies. So if he ruled to 539, I'm not real smart. I can figure out that that's the end of his reign. So 539 is when this chapter happens, which puts Daniel roughly right around 80, if not in his early 80s. So Daniel served with Nebuchadnezzar for like 50 plus years. So now he's now serving here with his descendants. So keep that in the back of your mind. So when Daniel comes on the scene here in Daniel 5, Daniel's probably in his early 80s at this point. He's been living in uh, Babylon for 60, 70 years at this time. And Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, keep in the back of your mind, Belshazzar names means Bel shall protect. Bel was a false god of Babylon. I don't mean to make a joke out of this, but Bel did not do a good job of protecting Belshazzar because Belshazzar dies, once again, at the end of chapter 5. So with that being said, let's see what happens here. Verse 1 of Daniel 5, it says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Stop. Why is he making a great feast? Well, we can put the historical context into the biblical context of what we're talking about. The reason Belshazzar was making a great feast because at this time, Babylon was surrounded by the Medes and the Persians. They had come and laid siege to the city of Babylon. Now, in the historical context of Babylon, Babylon was famous for its defenses. Its huge walls, its thick walls surrounded by water, it was nearly impenetrable. According to one estimate, Babylon had a food storage of maybe up to 20 years. So any invading army would have to have more food than that, and that was impossible back during the logistics of that time. So really, Babylon was nearly impenetrable. So Belshazzar is giving this feast. Why? Well, to kind of throw it in the Medes and Persians' face. Hey, look at us. We're not even worried about you. We have nothing to worry about. We're protected. So basically, in the midst of a siege, he gives this huge party to say, we have nothing to worry about. So, well, obviously, he did have something to worry about. Verse 2, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wife and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the God of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Okay, this is not a good start. <laughs> this is not a good start in any way. So they say, hey, do you remember what would have been about 60 years ago, 70 years ago now? Remember when your grandpa 
defeated Jerusalem and he took all the gold and silver from that supposed temple of Israel. Hey, let's go grab those things and let's drink wine from those things. So basically they're just standing up to God right then, which is not a good thing. And then number two, what are they doing? Well, there you can see in verse four, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. While this huge party is going on with verse two, his wives and his concubines. So you have this feast going on of pride and debauchery. This is not a good time. Well, couple of verses I just want to share with you. You can see them right there in your sheets. They're the first one out of Hebrews 10. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10. We have a tendency sometimes to think that people got away with something. Well, it'd be easy to look at Babylon and say, now Babylon came in 586 and 602 and all these other type of things. It'd be easy to look at this and say, look what Babylon did to Israel and God allowed it to happen. God didn't forget what Babylon did to Israel. He didn't. His judgment may have taken 70, 80 years, but he did not forget what happened. So just because someone lives a life of debauchery and sin and pride and whatever, and they live to the ripe old age of 90, that's not their way of saying they must have gotten away with it. I think that's God's way of saying, I'm going to give you nine decades of grace and hope that you come to know me. So Babylon has to pay for what they've done to Israel. goes to our second verse there in Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. Babylon sowed into this idea of pride. Babylon sowed into this idea of debauchery. God says it's now time to pay up for that. And that's what's going to happen here. Verse 5, In the same hour the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. This is where we get the phrase handwriting on the wall, obviously. Verse 6, And the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Now, I shouldn't like verse 6, but I really do like verse 6 for some reason. I really do. You can see what's building up here. Can you imagine in the midst of this party, and this is a big party, verse 5, presence of a thousand, that's a big party. So in the midst of this party and the wine and the drinking and all the other junk that's going on, they bring out all the Jewish stuff and let's drink to the gods of gold, silver, wood, stone. Out of nowhere, this hand appears and starts writing on the wall. That would freak out anybody. So his response is very kingly in verse 6. Now you need to know a little bit about Belshazzar as well. Belshazzar ruled with his father. We put that up there. Well, his father wasn't in Babylon. You know why? His father was the tough guy. His father actually went out of the kingdom, and he was with the armies, and he would constantly go on the outpost making sure everything was working. He left his son back in the safe city and said, you just run things from home. Belshazzar was that type of kid. <laughs> he was just the spoiled kid. So he's having this big party, nothing to worry about. Handwriting comes on the wall. Verse 6, he freaks out. Obviously, what does he do? Verse 7, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed, and his lords were astonished. Now we've made this point numerous times. Nebuchadnezzar did this back in Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar did this in Daniel 4. This idea of something happens, I don't know what to do. I call for my wise men. My wise men can't do it. I, I, this is just a point that we have to say and repeat again. Look at you at the bottom of your sheets there. Seeking the wisdom of the world. We just have to remember as Christians, anytime we're faced with opposition, trouble, problems, worry, fear, do not run to the world. Do not run to the world. Run into the arms of the person who died for you. See, what you see here is they run to the world. 
1 Corinthians 3, 19 through 20, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. I don't know how many times we do this, and I don't know why we continue to do this. We have a problem, so it's the first thing we do. We call up some human person. Now, I'm not against calling up friends and family. Obviously, there's wisdom in friends and family. The Bible makes that clear. But one thing, the, I shouldn't say one thing, the first thing we should do is let's have God take a shot at this. Let the Lord and His wisdom. So often, people call up, or I call up people and say, hey, here's my problem. You know, what's, here's the situation. What do you think I should do? And if people call me, the first thing I usually say is, have you prayed about it? Well, no. Well, then why don't you pray about it and then come talk to me? Because let's seek the Lord first. We have this tendency to seek men. Even if the man or woman is really strong in their walk with the Lord and really deep in their relationship with Christ, that wisdom does not compare to the limitless wisdom of God. Now, here's the problem, though, and I do the same thing. It's easier to talk to a person. You know why? Because you get an immediate response. I call. They answer. I say, here's my problem. They help give me a solution. See, with God, it doesn't work that quick. I pray, and then what do I do? Silence. Crickets chirping. God doesn't hear. God doesn't answer. He does hear and answer. He answers in his own time. He answers through worship. He answers through the word. He answers through, yes, the body of Christ. He can do that. But part of the way that God says, I want you to wait, is because the longer we wait seeking him, that means also that we have a deeper connection to him and we have a tendency to go to him. You know, in a few couple, I shouldn't say it, a few, in a couple chapters here, Daniel prays for something and it takes 21 days to get the answer. Sometimes God says, I'm allowing this situation to wait because that cultivates a deeper relationship between us. So the next time you pray about something, you're seeking wisdom and you're not getting that answer right away, don't get frustrated. Don't get upset. Realize that God is waiting because the longer he waits, the more time we spend with him and that cultivates a deeper relationship with them. Now, to be perfectly honest, if you need an answer right away, this goes back to the points we've said on Sunday mornings here as of late. This is why we need to cultivate a relationship of prayer every day because I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I mean, I know what my schedule says, but I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. So I want to start praying today already for tomorrow. Lord, give me wisdom for whatever phone call or text or email might pop up that may I know how to handle it. I'm already going to start praying for that because I don't know what it's going to be. See, once again here, you see the world turning to the world for answers. And guess what? The world has no answers. What's their response? Verse 9, Belshazzar is troubled, and according to this, his lords were astonished, or depending on your translation, perplexed. And that's what happens. When you turn to the world, you don't get the answers you need. Now let's just stop for a second before Daniel comes on the scene here. Any quick questions, comments about the historical background, anything we've talked about thus far? Ron. Right. And it's a very good question. Two things on that. Just remember, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. So I don't know how much contact he had between Nebuchadnezzar. But this we do know. If you jump ahead to um, verse 22 of Daniel 5. But you, his son, grandson, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Daniel comes right out to Belshazzar and says, you know what your grandfather went through. You know how your grandfather turned to the Lord. You know how your grandfather used me, and you chose to reject that. So Daniel does admonish him for not doing that. I mean, I'm not trying to pick on anybody here, but I'm sure there's a set of grandparents here that have grandkids that are not walking the way they want them to be walking. And even though you may set a godly example for them, Belshazzar obviously did not follow in Nebuchadnezzar's footsteps when it came to this in any way whatsoever. Anybody else have anything here? Yeah, Ryan. What what happened was is yes there was a river that actually flowed into Babylon to give them a fresh water supply and so what happened is the Medes and Persians actually came and at the right time they actually diverted the water flow dropped it down according to history about waist high so that way the soldiers could wade in underneath the gates because Babylon even had 
gates that were in the water to keep people from swimming in so they could wander underneath them, excuse me, wade underneath them, and they snuck in in the middle of the night and defeated Babylon. So, and it was something that they did. And according to the Bible here, this is something that God allowed and God wanted because then he used the Medes and the Persians for greater things too. So it's kind of an amazing thing according to history there. Yeah, good point. Anybody else have anything? Rose. There was plaster. I was just reading an article about this chapter where it talked about how the archaeology has defended this chapter. Because for many years, Daniel 5 caused a lot of problems for people because they couldn't find a record of Belshazzar. They couldn't find a record of this other stuff. And now as archaeology has come around, they have found proof of Belshazzar's existence and some of the other stuff here. So it's kind of a neat chapter to know that the secular history has also defended this as well, too. It's kind of neat when you stop and you think about it. Yeah, David. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I think God chooses life for everybody. It's just some people choose to reject that offer of life. I mean, I look also, uh, I look at a comparison of Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh from Exodus. Yes, God gave Nebuchadnezzar numerous attempts at life over a span of five decades. Nebuchadnezzar finally came around at the end of his life, it looks like, here and accepted it. Uh, Pharaoh got the same opportunities. Pharaoh saw miracle after miracle after miracle, and Pharaoh chose to reject. So it's not that God chose life for Nebuchadnezzar. God excuse me, in his infinite grace and, and mercy, I should say, just kept offering it again to him again and again and again. I don't think he forced salvation on Nebuchadnezzar in any way, but he kept giving him an opportunity to accept or reject it. So I don't look at that as him choosing life for him. I think I look at it as a loving God that says, I'm going to keep giving you an opportunity. So that's the way I kind of take a look at it. So, Tina. Right. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing because... Right. Pharaoh definitely hardened his heart each time, as the Bible says. And for Nebuchadnezzar, there seems to be this strange softening of I'm accepting of God, but at the same time I jump back into it. And I guess I can relate to Nebuchadnezzar because I see a lot of Nebuchadnezzars in, in what I do out here. Somebody who gets really excited about the Lord for a while, and then they disappear. Well, next thing you know, they're back a couple years later, and they're really excited about the Lord, and then they disappear. There's a lot of Nebuchadnezzars out here where God just keeps giving them one more opportunity, one more opportunity. Now, eventually, all of us die. And then those opportunities end. But until the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, God in his infinite grace and mercy just kept giving him one more shot, one more shot. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar took it. Amen to that. Yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. And you, you talked about um, the parable of the sower there. I know for me, and I say this half joking, half serious, anytime somebody comes out here to harvest, and the first time they come in the first service, they're just really, really excited. I'm always like, man, they're not going to stick around <laughs> because anybody that's that excited about us after one service, there's deeper issues going on because what happens is people get excited about stuff. We're not looking for excitement. We're looking for growth in Christ that happens. And I, don't get me wrong. We want the excitement of seeing people get saved and, and marriages being healed, etc. But sometimes I see people are just roller coasters. You know, they're going up and it's exciting. There's a hill coming. This is going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. And they go down and they disappear for a while. Next thing you know, three, four, five months later, oh, they're back again. And they're excited again. Boy, I tell you, that up and down of a Christian walk would make me nauseous. And, and that's where God is looking for this Christian walk, where there's progress being made, hopefully, on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, but going deeper in your walk in relationship with Christ. Nebuchadnezzar, at the end, got it, but it took him a while to get to that point. So, anybody else got anything here? Yeah, Tina. Right, and I agree. You know, and what Tina was saying there, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. He was raised with a lot of different gods, but at the same time, too, everybody is raised with some type of junk in their life. You know, I mean, somebody can say, well, I was raised by this type of dad, I was raised by this type of mom, or I wasn't raised by any mom or raised by any dad. The truth of the matter is we all reach a point in our life where we're all sinners destined for hell and do we want to accept Jesus or not. I agree with you, but Nebuchadnezzar also saw the fiery furnace, he saw the dreams interpreted. If anything, Nebuchadnezzar was giving more amazing witnessing tools than a lot of people as well, too. So, yeah, Ryan. 
Yeah, I know. And that's a sad thing. We, we were just talking with the boys the other day. If you look at like uh, Eli's life and Samuel's life, even in the Old Testament, Eli and Samuel were two godly men that the Lord really used. But the next generation, something just happened. And, you know, and that's where every generation has to make their own choice and decision for the Lord. And I don't know where I first heard it, but I've heard pastors say it numerous times, God has no grandkids. It's this idea of you have to, you personally have to make that choice to follow the Lord. And I don't know how many times I've heard people come in and their life's falling apart. Oh, my mom and dad were really just really focused on Christ and Jesus, and they really raised me this way. But you're not living it, man. Great, you were raised in a godly home. Amen. But you have to make that choice to choose to live it on your own. Obviously, Belshazzar chose not to. So, Well, let's see what happens here. Verse 10, the queen, everybody knows women are the smartest. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke. Now, I just want to stop there for a second. We don't know for sure, but just as the word father can also mean grandfather, a lot of people believe queen here was not actually his wife because of the relationship, the way things were. They actually think queen actually could have been grandma. Now, we don't know that for sure. So some people think this actually could have been Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Do note in this big party that's going on, guess what? She's not at the party. Now, I always find that a little interesting. Was it because she was a little more moral? Was it because she was a little more pure? Maybe she didn't get the invite? I don't know. But she was not there. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom, from whom is the spirit of the holy God. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas, were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Now, once again, I'm not trying to push this who was the queen thing, but she obviously had firsthand experience of who Daniel was. And please note also in verse 12, she also calls him by his Hebrew name. She obviously respects him, looks up to him, and dare the phrase we would use in the New Testament church, maybe she was a sister in Christ. We don't know, but she obviously knew something about Daniel for him to refer to him as Daniel. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. Remember, Daniel is probably at this time at least 80, if not in his early 80s. And if you look at the conversation he has with uh, Belshazzar, I'm not trying to pick on anybody here if you're that age, but they, it seems like Daniel's reached the old man age where he just doesn't care what he says anymore. He's just going to say what he thinks. He's just going to come right out and say to Belshazzar, you're in trouble here, man. Verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah? Look at that arrogance. The guy's been serving his father, his grandfather, for nearly 60, maybe 70 years, we don't know, and you're that captive from Judah whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me and they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they cannot give the interpretation of this thing. I've heard of you, that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Look at Daniel's response. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another, yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. My opinion is Daniel says, I just want to go back to bed. Let, let, me, let me read this thing. You're going to die. The Medes and Persians are coming. I already know this. So let me go back to bed. Verse 18, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up, and whoever he wished, he put down. 
But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in his pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and took his glory from him. But he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast and his dwelling with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. So he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over whomever he chooses. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you know all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought you the vessels of his house before you. You and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them and have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand, love that verse, and owns all your ways you have not glorified. Daniel doesn't pull any punches here. He comes right out and says, keep your gifts. I knew your grandpa. I saw what God did with your grandpa. And I'm just telling you right now, he goes, you're worshiping these false gods. Verse 24, then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing is written, and this is the inscription that was written, Mina, Mina, Teko, Umfarsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Mina, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, it's really easy to look at this chapter and just summarize it pretty quickly. Belshazzar was prideful. He was prideful. God brought him down. God judged him. We move on now to the Medes and the Persians. But we're missing a lot of it if we do that. We see a lot of things here, and some of these we've already hit on. This idea of that Belshazzar, and it's hard to believe, Belshazzar came from a believing family. He did. He just chose not to follow it. And it's interesting in Daniel's interpretation. Look at this. The interpretation took up verses 25, 26, and 27. Just three short verses. Now Daniel, though, gives him a testimony that starts in verses 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23. What have we said numerous times on Sunday here as of late? Jesus was more concerned about healing the spiritual side of man than the physical side of man. Daniel is more concerned about telling Belshazzar about God and what your grandfather did rather than what the interpretation is. Daniel saw the importance of this was the spiritual, not necessarily the fulfillment of prophecy. Daniel looks up. He says, here it is. Now, if you remember correctly from Daniel 4 last week, when Daniel gave that prophecy to Nebuchadnezzar about what was going to happen, Daniel was heartbroken. Daniel was heartbroken over what was going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. Here in Daniel 5, I don't see much heartbreak here. See, this is the thing that happens. We mentioned that word hardening of hearts. That's a scary word in Christianity. Because what happens is when you are presented with the gospel, when you're presented with the truth of the Lord, and you choose to reject that gospel message and the truth of God, the Bible makes it clear your heart just becomes a little harder and a little harder and a little harder. And what happens is you run into somebody later on in life, and you see them almost outright angry at God. And you sit there and you say, what happened to them? Sometimes there's not one traumatic event that happened. It's just decades of rejecting God's grace again and again and again, and their heart has become hard to the Lord. You hate to say that it reaches a point that, that certain people can't be saved, because we have a tendency to say out here, oh, if God saved Saul unto Paul, he can save anybody. If God saved Nebuchadnezzar, he can save anybody. God can save anybody. The clause to that is that person has to want to be saved. And I hate to say this, sometimes you run into people that don't want it. They just don't want it. Thank the Lord for decades God worked on Nebuchadnezzar's heart. Thank the Lord for that. Obviously God worked on Belshazzar's heart because when Daniel comes to him and says in verse 22, you already know all this. He knew it. He chose to reject it. And since he chose to reject it, he lived his life in debauchery. He lived his life in pride. He lived his life serving false gods. Judgment comes. You know, just like that first verse that we talked about back here at the beginning of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10. It says right there, 
go back and look at the front of your sheets. You know, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. We talked about how God does not ignore things. Babylon judged Israel. God judges Babylon. But look at that last phrase of that Hebrews 10. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, if Belshazzar was a Christian, or I should say a follower of the Lord, and the handwriting appears, okay, it would freak us out a little bit. There would be an excitement of God moving and working. When you're not saved and something like that happens, look at verse 6 one more time. His countenance changed, his thoughts troubled him, the joints of his hips were loosened, his knees knocked against each other. Why? Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is. When you don't know Christ as your Savior and you don't know God the Father as your Father, when you meet him, that is a fearful thing. When you stop and you think about that. Belshazzar. His life was taken very, very quickly there. And it was a fearful thing for him to fall into the hands of the living God. So that's something that hopefully should encourage us and spur us on. Because we all know somebody who's not saved. We all know somebody who lives their life in pride or debauchery or whatever. And you know what? Maybe they're not immoral people. Maybe they're a very good moral person. They still don't know Christ. We know what happens to them. That's something that should hopefully spur us on. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here? Ryan. Right. Because when I'm just going to read exactly what it says here because I don't want to mess this up. That last phrase, parson in verse 25 compared to Paris there in verse 28, what it is, it's the verb to divide, which is the plural of Paris. So that's what it is. So really what they are is the same word. One of them is just the plural form of it. That's why it is a little bit different there. Anybody else have any other questions, comments here before we go ahead and close up? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And you know what? That's one of those things where... As we get into Daniel's life here, and we get into the next chapter in Daniel, which is probably the most famous chapter in all the Bible, it's Daniel in the lion's den. Um, we all know what's going to happen. They come up and they make this rule that you can't pray. And what does Daniel do? Daniel at this time is at least mid to late 80s. They said you can't pray. What does Daniel do? I'm just going to go pray. I don't think Daniel cared. So I, you know what? They cover him up with all this stuff. You say you're third in the kingdom. Daniel probably says, can I just go home now? And he probably takes the gold chain off, takes the robe off, and says, this is really a pain in the butt to carry around. I really don't need this. And he goes, throws it in his closet. I think that's just the type of guy he was. He wasn't looking for this, because if he was looking for this, he could have said, you know what? I have the interpretation, and for just a small fee, I'll give it to you. Daniel realized, I serve God, and God called me to come serve this, and I come give the message that he did. And that's really what it comes down to. How simple is our life? You serve God, I serve God. So whatever God calls you to do, guess what we do? We do it. Let's not complicate things. I just read a great devotional uh, this week where it talks about the simplicity of Jesus. And you know I like that phrase a lot. It talks about how we get saved in the simplicity of Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. We believe in that and we go to heaven. That's simple. They said the problem is once we get saved, instead of walking in the simplicity of Jesus, now we make Christ really complex. Jesus is simple no matter how you look at it. Even now as a born-again man... My life is simple. I serve Christ. And you know what? As the bondservant, I just do what he says, when he says, how he says it. Daniel, just serve the Lord. doesn't matter if he served the Lord under the Babylonians. It doesn't matter if he served the Lord under the Medes and the Persians. He's going to serve God with whoever is ruling over him. That's what Daniel did. So any other final questions, comments here before we close up? Yeah, surely. I, I know your name. Sorry. I'm just... Yeah, right. And, and that's the difference between fact and faith. Fact is they saw God working in him, but they never placed their faith in him. It's the same thing with Pharaoh. God saw, excuse me, Pharaoh saw God working, just never placed his faith in him. And, and I've shared this with you before, and I'm not trying to put myself on the same level of Daniel. Don't take it that way. But I've had people that claim to be atheists ask for prayer. Why? I hope they see something in us that they care. And that just always blows my mind. People that care nothing about the Lord, when the going gets tough, what do they do? They find a church. They call the pastor. Because they need something. They see it. 
It's the same thing with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. When their world fell apart, they went to something they saw was calm and cool. And I'm telling you, sometimes your greatest witness in life is you're the only one staying calm while the world is falling apart. Your co-workers, your friends, and your family see that, that you do not react the same way the world reacts with anger and frustration and worry and fear and nervousness. You don't react that way. You stay calm in the midst of the storm. So therefore, when their world falls apart, they say, hey, I can call this person because this person always seems to have it together. Why? Maybe it's the God thing. That's part of our witness, is not letting fear control us in any way whatsoever. Anybody else have anything they want to say before we close up? All right. Oh, Kathy. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, too. It's like, yeah, go, you, know, you know, as Ryan mentioned, about he still took the gold and the stuff. Maybe he knew, hey, you're going to die anyway. I might as well take some gold with me. You know, I guess. I don't know. I, you know, maybe. It's all going to burn anyway. Might as well take it. So, all right, let's go ahead and close up here then. Uh, Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you now. Um, thank you for the example that you've given us in Daniel. Lord, help us to live that same life. Help us to be just a pillar of strength, not in our own might or power, but through you in a time and a world of uncertainty. Lord, the world is falling apart around us. Help us to be a Daniel that to stay strong and calm in the spirit of the Lord, not allowing fear and worry to control us. Help us be a light and a witness to all unsaved loved ones that were near and to point them towards you. Lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week. And God